The text for this morning's message is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 13. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves guiltless in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, not on account of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your zeal for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Well, this is the last Sunday of 1984, and everybody who is honest here, if you take the time... And the trouble to look back will have some regrets. Even though we can count our blessings and name them one by one, the list of our blunders is long, too. Resolutions unkept, bad habits unbroken, anger unconquered, scripture unmemorized, letters unwritten, opportunities not taken. The higher your goals and the keener your conscience, the bigger your regret. So it can be a real depressing time of year for people who care about following God. So I want to talk about regret this morning. And the text that I want to use is 2 Corinthians 7, especially verses 8, 9, and 10. And the doctrine that I would like to pull out of those verses can be put in a sentence like this. The good end of godly regret is salvation. Or the good result of godly regret is salvation. Before we go into that, let's get the situation clear in our minds behind this letter. Paul had evidently written another letter before he wrote 2 Corinthians. It probably was not 1 Corinthians when you look at it. He had written a letter in response to a situation there in Corinth in which evidently an opponent of his had wronged somebody. Maybe he had wronged Paul. However he had done it, he had drawn away the affections of the Corinthians from Paul so that their zeal for him had simply flopped. They were not excited about Paul anymore. They might have even turned on Paul. He writes them this letter, and uh, 
points out to them that he would long for them to change, repent, and stir up their zeal for him again and uh, show indignation for this opponent rather than being gullible toward him. Perhaps his authority had been questioned or his character maligned. It's not sure just what the situation was. But he writes this letter, evidently a fairly stern letter, and he sends it by Titus. Titus takes it probably over from Ephesus to, to Corinth. And then they make this agreement that they'll meet up at Troas. Titus will go up the Greek coast and Paul will go up through Asia. They'll meet in Troas and Paul will learn, did I alienate them or did I win them? And he heads for Troas, and you see that back in chapter 2, verse 13. He gets to Troas, no show. Titus isn't there. Paul is filled with anxiety. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. You can see it. He crosses over into Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. Perhaps he hopes he can uh, find Titus on his way up. And it says that he's struggling with external conflicts, internal fears in verse 5. And finally, Titus comes with news, and the news is good. The letter did not alienate them. The letter won them over. They have repented. They are on their way to salvation as he prayed. And things are good again. And then come these magnificent words in verses 8 through 10, which are so full of teaching that we could spend many hours talking about their implications. For even if I made you sorry, he writes now to them, having heard the news, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. So, the teaching that I would draw out of this, in summary, is the good end of godly regret is salvation. And under that main heading, I would put three points that we'll talk about. One is, godly regret is good. The second one, godly regret produces repentance. And the third, godly regret leads to salvation. But now, before we go into those three points, we need to define this term godly regret, since we're using that in every one of our headings. It's used twice. It's used in verse 9 and it's used in verse 10. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret But worldly grief produces death. Now, I replace the word grief with regret because grief can be for all kinds of things. This is this is a particular kind of grief. It's not the grief over a lost loved one. It's the grief over a past sin. We call that regret. This is the pain and the grief of regret here. Now, to define it, what godly regret is We need to notice something very important. Its opposite is not no grief. Its opposite is worldly regret. You see that? That a worldly grief leads to death. A godly grief leads to salvation. So 
we need to discover what's the difference between worldly regret and godly regret. It would be nice if the powers of darkness made the difference between good and evil as nice and clear as one person's crying and sorry and the other person's a stone. And it isn't so simple. You've got two people crying and sorry. And one is worldly and one is godly. It's very important that we understand the difference, lest we be sucked in and easily deceived that some emotional reaction to a past blunder is immediately equated with a godly repentance. It may not be at all. So what's the difference? I would suggest two differences between a worldly regret and a godly regret. A worldly regret is when you feel sorry for something that you did because it starts to backfire on you and brings you into trouble or humiliation. It's the reflex of a proud or a fearful ego. You see, if you're proud and you do something stupid that brings humiliation, you'll be sorry. You might cry. And it's pure worldliness. Or if you're fearful and you do something which later turns up to show that it's bringing your future into jeopardy. Bad investment, maybe, or a dumb comment to somebody. And now your future is jeopardized. You'll feel sorry. But it's just worldliness. There's no necessary godliness in feeling sorry over a blunder that has brought your ego into disrepute or your future into jeopardy. Sinners do such things. There's nothing godly about that kind of regret or sorrow. Godliness or godly regret is the response of a conscience that has wounded God's ego, not its own ego. It's the response of a conscience that grieves that God's name has been brought into disrepute or his purposes have been hindered, not our name or our purposes. A godly regret flows from a God-saturated heart, not a world-saturated heart. That's the first difference. The second one is very much like it, but slightly different. Godly regret is the regret that comes when the Word of God puts its finger on some sin in your life and identifies it as sin. Worldly regret doesn't have the Word of God functioning as the criterion of guilt. Worldly regret has the attitudes of men, maybe even your own, but especially other people's attitudes functioning as the criterion of guilt. So that if you do something that others regard to be stupid or silly or reprehensible, and then it comes back on you, you feel bad because you want their praise, you want their support. And you've lost it in that dumb thing you did. And so you feel bad, guilty, regretful, and it's all worldly. So there is a big difference at root between the weeping over a blunder that is worldly and the weeping over a blunder that is godly. And the difference is that a godly regret, in summary, is the uncomfortable feeling of guilt 
that comes when the word of God has put its finger on sin in our lives and thus shows us that we have brought his name into disrepute. It's a God-centered, a God-oriented regret, not a man-oriented or ego-oriented regret. Now, back to the main teaching that I said I wanted to pull out of these verses. The good end or the good result of godly regret is salvation. Three explanatory points. First, godly regret is good. Paul says twice that he rejoices over what had happened in Corinth. All their grief and regret. He rejoices over what happened there. It's a good thing that happened in Corinth that he brought them to godly regret. It's good, however, like pain is good. None of us says pain is good in and of itself. You don't isolate pain off by itself and say, that's a good thing. Pain is good in a world where you can bleed to death when you get cut. Pain is good in a world where a tumor can kill if you don't catch it while it's still operable. Pain is good in a world where infection can spread to gangrene if you don't feel it. Pain is a good thing in a world like ours. And godly regret is to sin what pain is to disease. It's a symptom. It's a warning that something needs to be done. A sensitive conscience is a gift of God, just like live nerve endings are a gift of God that jerk a hand out of scalding water. My grandmother lost that and burned herself again and again on frying pans and irons and hot water because she just didn't feel anymore. No pain. Great, right? No pain. No, not a good thing. And yet, there are so many people today who teach that guilt is bad. Of course, there are bad guilt feelings. That is, unwarranted, unreal, unnecessary guilt feelings, just like there is psychosomatic pain. There's no real disease behind it. Don't you think that's what Paul was experiencing here in verse 8? I think Paul had unreal guilt in verse 8. He says, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I think Paul tortured himself for weeks with unnecessary anxiety and guilt. He wrote this letter, and as soon as he shot it off with Titus, he said, it's going to alienate them. I've blown it. I should have taken it myself or it probably just all kinds of things came to his mind. And he struggled. It says in verse five, fightings without fears within. What will be the news when Titus comes? And when Titus comes, the news is good. And he looks back on five weeks of false guilt. It was unnecessary was all wrong. It was kind of a false alarm. The pain didn't signal any disease. It shouldn't even have been there. And he probably chastised himself and repented and said, I should have trusted you more. 
Lord Jesus. That's all right. Let's get over that. But I'm talking about people who really oppose guilt in their counseling or in their teaching. What they're really opposing is sin, a low view or a very inadequate view of the horrendous proportions of sin in relation to God. Well, real guilt is good. Godly regret is a gift. It is good, and we ought to accept it and look for the disease and healing. Remember, if you watched as many Westerns as I did as a kid, I don't know if they still do this or not, but I assume it's true. I learned everything I know about the frontier from television. They gave people whiskey before they amputated a foot because it would dull the pain, right? Is that true? doesn't matter. That's good. I got no problem with that. The problem is, the tragedy is, there are people in our day who take whiskey or a lot of other artificial things to dull the warning signals, not only of physical pain, but of moral pain, guilt, and completely ignore the disease that's causing it. And they blind their eyes again and again and forget that physical pain and godly regret are signals given by God to do something about what's behind it. Some changes are in order. And instead of running from them or drowning them in one way or another by watching TV or overworking or drinking or you name it, we ought to view them face to face and change. Now, that leads to point number two. Godly regret produces repentance. Verse nine says that Paul's joy was not owing to the fact that they simply felt bad, that they experienced guilt. He said, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And then verse 10 gives the general truth. Godly grief produces repentance. Now, the first thing to notice here is that they aren't the same. Godly grief or godly regret and repentance are not the same. There are a lot of people who think that repentance is feeling sorry for what you've done. And this text says feeling sorry for what you've done leads to repentance. So repentance is something more. Repentance is Turning from sin. If you were involved in a bad attitude or a bad behavior, your conscience condemns you. You start to feel guilty for it. That should lead to an about face. You turn from it. You renounce it. You go in another direction and say, no more of that. I'm finished with that. And if you don't get to that point, then it's not godly regret. It's self-deception. It's worldly Regret. The test of whether our grief is of God is whether it produces change in our lives. Repentance is a turning away. And you can read here in verses 7 and 11 how Paul describes the change that he heard about, which gave him so much encouragement. 
about the Corinthians. The rejection of him had turned into an acceptance and their gullibility had turned into indignation. There's now a zeal for him. They had really done an about face. So godly remorse or guilt or regret or grief is a very productive, a very fruitful emotion. It does not immobilize you in the pits of depression. It is temporary and effective. Look at verse 8 where he says, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. That's very important. If the feeling of regret and guilt has a hold of you, has held you a long, long time after the sin has been repented of and forsaken, that guilt, that regret, that grief is not of God. It's worldly. It's an attack of Satan who loves to keep believers from enjoying their forgiveness. If Satan can't keep you from regretting your sin, he will do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. If he can't keep you from grieving over your sin, then he'll do his best to turn your grief, which is godly at first, into an ongoing bondage to unwarranted guilt. And if there is any work of the devil that the Son of God came into the world to destroy, it's that work. The work of the devil to keep the children of God from enjoying their forgiveness. Godly grief throws us to the foot of the cross. The dying Christ slays the dragon of guilt. He frees us from the bondage to sin and guilt. We are enabled by him then to turn from sin, rebuke the devil who has been defeated, and walk in paths of righteousness that lead to salvation. Which leads to the final point, namely, godly grief leads to salvation. Look at verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Now, doesn't this help you understand verse 5? where it says that Paul is fightings without and fears within, I suppose you might say, well, what's the big deal, Paul? I mean, what are all, what's this fear for that you've got? What are you fearing for? And the answer would be, I'm fearing that my work might have been in vain in Corinth. I'm fearing that some of these professing believers might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and turn into the path of unrepentance or worldly regret, which leads to death and not to salvation. There is much at stake here. I think that's what Paul would have answered. He wrote later in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, he said, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ to present you a pure bride to her one husband. But I'm afraid 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so very consistently, Paul, in his last chapter of this book, issues a warning to the believers to test themselves. He says in chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are holding to your faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What's the test? What what test should a believer use to find evidence that he isn't kidding himself? You see, that's the issue of assurance in the Christian life. The issue is not, did you ever pray a prayer to receive Jesus? Nor is the issue merely, are you now trusting Jesus? The issue is, do you know you're trusting Jesus? Do you know that you are in the faith, as Paul says? Do you know that Christ is in you? There are a lot of false assurances being handed out today. But if you ask Paul in this letter, well, what's the test, Paul, by which I discern whether Christ is in me and whether I'm in the faith? Paul would say, look at chapter 7. Look at verses 8 through 10. There are two paths. One path proceeds from godly regret to repentance and change to salvation. And the other path leads from worldly regret through no changes, no repentance to death. The test is, which path are you on? That's the test. When he says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He's saying, what path are you on? Does your sin, when you commit it, strike godly grief into your heart? Does it lead to change and repentance and battle with the evil one? Are you on the road that leads to salvation? Or are you sunk in the mire of some nominal evangelicalism which says, I once felt guilty for my sins and prayed to receive Jesus, and it doesn't make any difference whether I change my life or not. I'm secure. In summary, then, godly regret is good. Godly regret produces repentance, change in attitudes and behavior. And therefore, godly regret leads to salvation. There is no other route to salvation in the Bible than over the pathway of repentance. Now, let me close with two simple and obvious applications. One Let's be the kind of people who are willing to cause godly regret. And let's be the kind of people who are willing to receive and experience godly regret. And here's what I mean. When I say cause godly regret, I don't mean cause your brother or sister to stumble into sin. I mean, be willing, if necessary, to bring their attention to their sin. None of us likes to do this. It is not easy. Paul didn't like to do it. You see what happened when he tried it? He wrote this letter, like you might have written a letter. And as soon as he sends the letter off, he goes into pits of depression. Oh, no. What if they reject me? What if they take it all wrong? What if I alienate them? What if I ruin my ministry possibilities with them? 
And on and on, the fears go within and fightings without. And you've all experienced that if you've ever tried, honestly, in love, to admonish a brother or sister. Well, I simply urge you to, to press on. If you see a brother or sister taken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, whether by letter, by word of mouth, by example. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, don't be content to let a brother or a sister go on in sin. And then the second half is just to put yourself on the other end of the line. Be a Paul and be a Corinthian. Here you are receiving the letter. How are you going to respond to this letter? It's a rebuke. It's tough. And it's loving. And you read it. What are you going to do? How are you going to feel inside? Are you going to bristle? Who does he think he is? Way off there. He doesn't even know what's going on here. He's got faults anyway. And all the defensiveness. Is that, is that the way we're going to respond to the rebuke of a brother or sister that comes to us because they perceive some flaw in our character or need to change? I hope not. I hope we will be humble enough to, to, to do it for others and humble enough to receive it from others because the truth stands firm. The good end of godly regret is salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, this is the end of 1984 and probably not a person in this room escapes regret or feelings of failure and blunder and guilt looking back. And so my prayer for us is that we might experience godly regret and that it might be appropriately brief. And that Satan might be frustrated in his attempts to turn it into an ongoing bondage to unwarranted guilt. And that the cross of Christ might be highly exalted in our midst so that we can kneel at its foot and experience the massive power of the death of Christ to atone for every sin we've ever committed and lift it off of us and send us forth into the path of repentance and the path of life and salvation. Perform it among us, I pray. Make us a new people, willing to admonish one another, willing to receive admonition, always able to glorify your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.